Part One Storybook A light frost still lingered at the base of the bare red maple trees and formed lines in the long shadows under the buck fencing. Maggie walked with brisk, steady purpose, eyes straight ahead, her elbows moving forward and back like an indecisive weather vane. Her long dress was hitched up and clenched in bundles against her hips to keep it from dragging and catching in the dry brown bramble rods leaning into the path along the creek. Not far now. Polly's cabin, where she lived with two brothers, was just up around the next creek bend where the falls dropped beside the old disused sawmill. Maggie hadn't really trusted the woman from the start. Polly was over 15 years older than Maggie, and she always wore the same two black dresses, the plain one for work, and the other with scraps of lace sewn onto the cuffs and neck for going into town. A tiny show of finery in denial or defiance of her desperate poverty. Both of Polly's dresses were cut a little too tight for Maggie's liking, showing off the trim and shapely figure of this woman who had knocked on their door over ten years ago looking for work. Maggie remembered the day clearly, Polly announcing herself, her name, her age, her skills for hire. The dark skin of her then 40-year-old face had peered from under a black bonnet, showing few wrinkles for a woman of her stated age and Polly was still a handsome, trim, and shapely-figured woman these ten years and more later, unlike Maggie, whose youthful, womanly curves had already surrendered to the ardors of childbearing every year or two, while Maggie's own face, still not yet forty years old, was already deeply creased from seasons working the garden and fields under countless midday suns. In spite of her niggling misgivings, about Polly's way of dressing, about her lack of a husband. Maggie had eventually agreed with Alex that they could do with some help around the place. And besides, Maggie had seen off plenty of much younger temptresses in the past. An older woman seemed like a safe bet. Best of all, she certainly hadn't been asking for much money. Over the years that she had worked for the Buckner family, Polly Brewington had never found a match of her own. She was almost never seen at church socials, corn huskings, or really anywhere at all, and seemed oddly resigned to living out her days as a spinster, working all day and going home to her cabin on the creek. Or so Maggie thought. At first she had chided herself, thinking it was only her overly busy imagination the stolen glances, Polly brushing up just a little too close while reaching for things, Alex going out hunting only to arrive back home empty-handed. Bad luck today. It always got worse when Maggie lay in childbed. Then Polly would bustle around filling the space of their small house, humming to herself, black bonnet removed and hung on the door peg. Why, sometimes she even allowed her long, shining black hair to hang down unpinned as she worked. And then word finally got back to Maggie. 
The neighbors had begun to whisper that the dark, black-eyed Brewington woman had cast a charm over Alex Buckner. Of course, Maggie had immediately dismissed her. Harsh words were exchanged. Maggie with Polly, and later, Maggie with Alex. She had flushed with shame on more than one occasion since then, knowing her children had heard too much, too young. Still, Maggie had defended her hearth and home, and that should have been that. But only three weeks before Christmas this year, as Maggie lay once more in childbed, the brazen hussy had rapped on their door again. Too weak to stand, Maggie had lifted herself on the feather bed, straining to hear the exchange between Polly and her husband, before he walked out into the yard, pulling the door shut behind him. Maggie's face had gone hot, her temples pulsing with helpless rage. But now, here she was, only a fortnight later, up from her child bed, and ready to confront Polly Brewington. I'm Brian Halpin. Welcome to the time before we were white. Part 2. Cumberland Jackson and Putnam counties in Middle Tennessee lie situated where the shale and sandstone of the Cumberland Plateau drops down into rolling sandstone and limestone hills, with those hills divided by rivers and creeks with numerous caves and waterfalls, until giving way farther west to the flatter and more fertile farm and forest lands stretching on toward the Mississippi River. Jackson was already a county in 1801, but Putnam wasn't created until 1842, when it was carved from the surrounding counties of Jackson, Overton, Fentress, and White. Most Americans presume that all European settlers heading west over the Appalachian Mountains were just simple but adventurous folk looking for some land to farm dowdy pioneers facing into a virgin wilderness. This is, of course, the oversimplified Anglocentric view of American history, in which civilization pushed westward into an unexplored and untamed land, populated by wild animals and small bands of roving heathens and savages. While our view of North America's indigenous peoples and cultures has improved somewhat in recent decades, The story of the frontier and Wild West remains largely unchanged in the minds of most Americans. Yet by the time Jackson County was formed, 260 years had already passed since the first Spanish had arrived in Tennessee. 
Their plans for conquest were cut short, of course, after only 30 years, when they were run out of the region by local people in the late 1500s. But this didn't deter a succession of French and Englishmen from attempting to reconnoitre the region again during the 1600s. But Tennessee was no easy land simply there for the taking. Tennessee had been a convergence point for many indigenous tribes and communities for centuries, with control of territory and trade networks being regularly contested among themselves. So a few more Europeans passing through was not seen as a major threat back in those days. They had seen off the Spanish long ago, after all. Tennessee was filled with towns and small fortified cities, inhabited by the Coosa, Cherokee, Chickasaw, Choctaw, Cushada, Uchi, Siska, and others. These were complex societies of agriculturalists and traders, not small roving bands of hunters living in deerskin tents. As to the Europeans dipping a toe in the waters, the French probably had the most early success in Tennessee, managing to set up fur-trading towns and forts along major waterways during the mid-1700s, the most notable being the ones near the Cumberland River at French Lick, near the present site of Nashville, and that at Fort Assumption, on the Mississippi River, near present-day Memphis. So the earliest English-speaking settlers of Middle Tennessee during the late 1700s and early 1800s were entering a region inhabited and still contested by multiple powers, both European and indigenous, a land in no way describable as a vast empty wilderness. The French had transferred much of the land west of the Mississippi River to Spain in 1763, at least on paper, and this land would not revert back to France, and eventually to the USA, until 1803. Tennessee lay at the heart of old established trade networks over road and water, connected to Spanish Louisiana on the Gulf Coast to the south, British and French Canada to the west and north, mostly Cherokee lands at its centre, and the newly independent and aggressively expansionist USA to the east. Again, it cannot be stressed enough, the west wasn't being newly opened up or discovered. English-speaking Americans were simply arriving very late at the party. Precisely because Middle Tennessee lay at the center of so many existing trade networks, many settler immigrants from the newly born USA to the east were attracted by trade opportunities rather than a simple dream of land clearance and sod busting. Cheap or free land was just as often being sought in order to access the tradable resources on and under it. Timber, ginseng, iron, lead, silver, you name it. Using land for simple subsistence farming was a game for penniless land squatters or war veterans claiming a land bounty as payment for years spent shooting British soldiers and Indians. Word of easily accessible and valuable resources can never be kept secret for long, and the people piling into Tennessee and Kentucky in the years after the American Revolution were often operating to a plan based on prior word, 
tip-offs and rumours from earlier Indian traders and long hunters. In other words, they were rarely flying blind. An example of this would be the superior quality white clay discovered on Cherokee lands where North Carolina abuts Tennessee. Already by 1767, the famed English potter and abolitionist Josiah Wedgwood was shipping tons of this Cherokee white clay by pack mule from Appalachia to the East Coast for shipment to his kilns in the English Midlands. Similarly, many settlers of Middle Tennessee during the early 1800s were surely attracted by word of the vast guano deposits of the Tennessee cave systems, which are found concentrated along the edges of the Cumberland Plateau, running northeast to southwest and almost bisecting the state. Guano is the dried dung of seabirds or bats, and in the age before artificial fertilizers, Guano was like a super manure, able to make marginal farmland much more productive. This naturally occurring saltpeter, more properly known as potassium nitrate, was also used for curing meat, a thing of huge importance in the era before refrigeration. But during times of war, as a main constituent of black gunpowder in pre-industrial days, Guano was an extremely valuable commodity indeed. During the war years of 1812 to 1814, when hostilities between the USA and Britain resumed, guano became so valuable it was worth fighting and even dying over. And speaking of dying, back in the 1800s, when people around this part of Tennessee died, something rather odd happened to many of them. Instead of having their body placed in a normal grave with the obligatory headstone, family would bury their dead and then place long, heavy, flat stone slabs over the grave, propped up lengthwise at an angle to give the appearance of a stone pup tent. Then, instead of the traditional headstone, both of the open ends of this stone tent would be closed off with triangular cut stone slabs or tall head and foot stones which were often twice the height of the tent itself. These highly unusual burials are usually referred to as tent graves or comb graves, after an old word for a roof gable. While people have reached general agreement on a name for this burial practice, Almost no one seems to agree on the why of these graves. Some have tried to link them with indigenous burial customs, yet there is no archaeological record of such graves predating the arrival of post-revolutionary war trans-Appalachian settlers. Other writers claim that these graves were designed to deter grave robbers, yet any 12-year-old child with a long stout lever could flip such slabs over with ease. Most articles and scholarly papers have tended to settle on the idea that tent graves were simply a way to prevent or cover soil subsidence and to protect fresh or shallow graves from being dug up by wild animals or trampled upon by livestock. Again, while this explanation may account in part for this curious practice, 
it seems to ignore the fact that tent graves are often found intermingled with more conventional contemporary graves. If these stone tents were only about protecting graves, why wouldn't everyone wish to protect the grave of their loved ones? And not just in Middle Tennessee. Could it have been a question of finances? A tent grave obviously involves more raw materials and labor than a normal grave. But here, once more, a promising argument falls down. Cemeteries with both types of grave often include the normal graves of people who are known to be quite well off and people buried under tent graves who are often from extremely poor families. A simple distribution map shows the maximum concentration of tent graves are found along the western edge of the Cumberland Plateau. Although found in a broad belt, reaching from West Virginia all the way to North Georgia, Mississippi, and Alabama, with a few present even as far as Arkansas and Texas, it is almost certainly correct to view these graves as a mainly Middle Tennessean tradition. More particularly, it would be correct to view these graves as being connected to very specific groups of families who entered a very specific section of Middle Tennessee in the years after the Revolutionary War. The Cumberland Settlements, near present-day Nashville. Entering this section of Tennessee back then was possible in only two ways. Either by old Indian and bison traces, which had been slightly upgraded for wagon travel, or more usually, by water. Wasioto, or the Cumberland River, was one of the major highways into this region, long used by the French in their dealings with the Shawnee. This very specific section of Middle Tennessee, the center of the tent grave tradition, comprises only a handful of counties. Pickett, Overton, Fentress, Cumberland, White, Van Buren, Putnam, and Jackson. If this is all beginning to sound tedious and boring, stay with us. The counties named also happen to correspond almost exactly with Tennessee's largest concentration of cave systems. Using map overlays, the matching of caves to graves is almost uncanny. Caves meant guano, and guano meant money. This might all sound like merely interesting coincidence, speculation, and conjecture, except for the fact that guano mining had already begun around the year 1800 in the Sequatchie Valley to the southeast, after an American named James Orr and his militia attacked and burned down the Cherokee town of Nickajack in 1794, a settlement situated at the mouth of a massive cave a cave which contained vast amounts of guano. The town of Nickajack was brought under American control, rebuilt, and soon the Sequatchie Valley was connected to the Cumberland settlements by the Nickajack Trail. The local Cherokee lingered on in and around Nickajack, harassed and disempowered for another 40 years before being marched at gunpoint to Oklahoma. Very little remains from that bloody time. Just the old Indian trails themselves, often covered now by modern roads. A few frontier-era cabins. Memories, 
and some of the oldest and strangest looking comb and tent graves in Appalachia. Yes, very little remains. Unless you count ghosts. Part 3. Storybook. Continued. Polly was already standing on the sagging porch outside her front door, wiping her hands on a dirty apron, before Maggie had reached the garden gate. The gate hung open, leading onto a narrow dirt path through the winter cabbage beds to the porch. But Maggie stopped anyway, her anger giving way to a measure of prudence. She cast her eyes left and right, not turning her head, checking for the presence of Polly's brothers. Once she was certain they were away, she stepped up the path toward the porch. Stop right there, Maggie. What brings you all the way out here this fine morning? You know dang well why I'm here, Polly Brewington. What you mean coming around knocking on our door? Polly eyed her up and stepped down off the porch crossing her arms. I had to talk to Alex. Couple of things needin' settling. What things? We don't owe you nothing. And if we did, you go on and talk to me about it. The merest hint of a smile crossed like a breeze over Polly's mouth. Polly took another step forward, putting her hands on her hips, chin raised, eyeing Maggie sideways. Alex never told me I had to go through you. The heat in Maggie's face. Again. Then she was shouting. You keep my man's name out of your dirty lying mouth, Polly Brewington. I'm here to tell you straight. Next time you darken our doorway, I'll drag you by your long pretty hair right back out of our yard. But only after I got some of the meat off your back with a switch. You hear me? You'd do plenty well to heed a fair warning. With that, Maggie turned to go. Behind her, she could hear children inside the cabin, one of them whimpering, another at the door calling to Polly. Mama, what's wrong? Nothing. Go on back indoors. Maggie turned around once more and saw a boy, maybe 12 years old, jump down off the porch and run to Polly wrapping his arms around her waist and pulling her back towards the house. I said, get on back indoors now. Polly disentangled herself from the boy, pushing him back towards the house. He gave one last long look over his shoulder at Maggie before being shoved inside, the door slammed shut after him. Maggie's blood ran like ice through her veins. The boy's face, the boy's eyes, Alex's face. Alex's eyes. Polly was back down off the porch, walking towards Maggie, arms out level and shoulder height in front of her, hands jerkily shooing her away, fully ready to push her down the path and back out the gate if need be. Go on, see what you've done. 
You gone and scared the children. Maggie heard nothing but a low humming in her ears and saw nothing but Polly's bare feet on the cold ground and the wooden trug on the ground beside those same brown feet. A sangho rested on top of a bundle of roots in the trug. Her head was now filled to bursting and everything seemed to slow down like some weird twilight shadow dance. As Polly went to push her, Maggie bent, crouching down and picking up the hoe and rising again in one motion, her arms swinging with wild force in a steady aimed backhand arc as she rose, the winter sun glinting off a polished and sharp silver edge. The humming in her ears stopped and she looked at Polly, who stood staring back at her through already blank eyes dark red blood coursing from the terrible wound in the side of her head, where the hoe remained, stuck. Polly crumpled face first to the ground, black dress already soaked in blood. Maggie turned, stumbling over her own dress, and ran. Part 4. A Grave Matter There is always clear blue water between the things we can really know about the past and the stories we tell about the past. Folklore tells us that shortly after giving birth to her son William Buckner, Maggie was chatting amongst friends when the name of Polly Brewington came up. Or maybe it didn't. Stories have legs of their own. Whatever the case, most accounts agree that Maggie Buckner blurted out suddenly to all and sundry. Well, the old witch is dead now. So folklore, on fresh new legs, then took every back road and sidetrack in the further telling of the story of the Buckner witch. Some say that Maggie Buckner was herself a witch accomplished in the dark arts, and that she had cast a spell back onto Polly Brewington, killing her. Other whispered mutterings say Maggie Buckner stove in the skull of Polly Brewington with a ginseng hoe, and that Polly's brothers had quickly buried her in an unnamed grave and left Jackson County for good, thinking better of seeking revenge in a place where they and their sister were looked on with such deep suspicion. It was also said that the haint of Polly Brewington never left Maggie a moment's peace the rest of her days, that Maggie even took to carrying a stout stick in later years, the better to protect herself from the vengeful revenant in the long black dress, a haint which might appear anywhere, at any hour, in the garden, or under the bed at night. And Polly Brewington didn't content herself with drawing the cold winds of the grave down upon Maggie Buckner. She spread her reproachful malevolence freely among the wider community, a community which had shunned her. Funnily enough, folklore rarely mentions some of the most interesting facts about the Buckner witch, 
the stuff we can really know. Polly Brewington, like so many others in this section of Tennessee, was laid to rest under a tent grave. Now, we've already drawn attention to a possible connection between these tent graves and guano mining. What we haven't done is hazard a guess as to the cultural or ethnic origins of the people who lie buried under these tent graves. This is the point where the Scots-Irish Brigade and believers in white Christian nationalism tend to look away, because early Appalachia is supposed to be a land explored, pioneered, fought over and settled, mostly by the sons of Ulster and other white folks. But here is the thing. In all the studies undertaken which attempt to explain tent and comb graves, in all the photo collections, in all the essays, in among innumerable speculations regarding Indian burial customs, on all the superb distribution maps of tent grave cemeteries, no one, as far as this writer is aware, has attempted to connect these graves to a specific culture or ethnic group using that oldest of archaeological tools. Simple typological analysis. That is to say, what do the graves actually look like, and where else, other than Appalachia, are such graves to be found? Certainly not in Protestant Ulster. Where tent-shaped graves are found is throughout North Africa and in certain cemeteries of Europe, from Vienna to Hamburg. In Sephardic Jewish cemeteries. And yes, there is a big distance between noticing a striking typological similarity between things and proving a connection. Fine. But things get even more interesting when we dig into the archival record. You see, contrary to the folklore, which says the Brewingtons arrived out of nowhere into the Buckner's community, arousing suspicion, Polly Brewington was in fact part and parcel of the many, many multi-ethnic families settling this part of Tennessee at the time. It's all there, clear as day in the records. Polly Brewington was the daughter of James Brewington and Blessie Smith. In 1830, James Brewington was head of a household of 12 free persons of color in Jackson County, Tennessee. In 1850 White County, Tennessee, Blessie is clearly enumerated as a mulatto. And before we jump to conclusions and say, ah, racism, the Buckners and their community didn't like free persons of color, black folks, presuming to move in and act as equals in a tight-knit white community. Uh, stop right there. Nothing, absolutely nothing, is what it appears at first glance in American history. For a start, in 1800s Appalachia, the term mulatto was a term thrown like a blanket over all and any who looked something other than Northern European, not just people of African and European admixture. Mulattoes might be the offspring of slaveholders, and yes, that includes slaveholders who were themselves people of color. 
they might be the children of runaway or manumitted slaves and Indians. They might have been what were once called half-breeds, the progeny of long hunters, trappers and traders, and indigenous women. Or they might be gypsies, or South Asians, or French Métis, or Portuguese, or Jews. Fact is, until a cross-section of Brewington descendants come forward with DNA haplogroup test results, we simply don't know why Polly's family were called mulattoes or free persons of colour. Whatever the deep ancestry of the Brewingtons, it would still be simple and easy to see all of this as a typical American story of demonization and persecution based on skin colour. But there is a real problem with such an interpretation. You see, the Buckners were also from a family of free persons of colour. Maggie Buckner's husband, Alex Buckner, seems to have been the grandson of a huge slaveholder named George Buckner, a man with 11 free persons of colour in his household in 1820 a man married to a woman named Melinda Minor. Minor is a surname deeply associated with the dark-skinned Melungeon people of southern Appalachia, and Melinda's grandfather, Thomas Minor, born around 1718, was also a large slaveholder. One of his slaves was named Bob Bowling. The Bowlings are also a widespread multi-ethnic family of southern Appalachia, now usually self-identifying as white. With many of these free people of colour, it is often not even entirely clear whether the slaves they held were in fact slaves, or just family members who were enumerated as slaves to avoid difficulties in the face of laws banning racial intermarriage. Just imagine attempting to enforce black or white Tennessee race laws when confronted with, say, a Jewish merchant from South Carolina married to a Cherokee woman when their house and holdings included their own mixed ethnic children and multi-ethnic slaves. If all of this sounds complicated, that's because it is. So to put it more simply... The Brewingtons and Buckners were far from being the only free persons of colour who pioneered the Cumberland settlements. Listing the name of every family involved in this tent grave tradition would make for a very boring podcast episode. Suffice to say that between families bearing surnames such as Allred, Bilbury, Boswell, Bowman, Cantrell, Copeland, Hammock, Hash... Holland, Lanier, Looper, Norid, Poston, Quarles, Stamp, Swafford, Wallen, and many others, there is a nexus of complicated ethnicity having precious little to do with the Scots-Irish. Does this mean that no people of Irish, Scottish, Welsh, English, or German ancestry lie buried under tent graves? No, of course not. Because in a culturally mixed environment, people behave like magpies, picking up new things along the way, giving them a twist, and then claiming them as their own. Just look at 
Dutch Santa Claus or German Easter bunnies or Irish jack-o'-lanterns. And if all of this sounds somehow incredible, like a podcast version of a Dan Brown novel, remember this. Most humans see what they have been taught to expect. I call this the toast paradigm. One rarely reads about a Hindu person amazed to find the face of Jesus on his morning toast. Jesus' toast seems to be a strictly evangelical Christian phenomenon. If a person has been programmed by ceaseless repetition to believe in a thoroughly Scots-Irish history and settlement of Appalachia, they will see Scots-Irish culture everywhere, in everything. And if you believe in ghosts, you will see them everywhere, too. Good historical research can only disprove one of the aforementioned beliefs. Happy Halloween. Oh, nearly forgot one last thing. Putnam County, Tennessee, home of the Buckner Witch, was named for an American war hero named Israel Putnam, whose father, Joseph Putnam, fell out with members of his own family after being one of the few to speak out publicly against the Salem witch trials hysteria of the 1690s. Go figure. This episode of Before We Were White was written and produced by your host, Brian Halpin. Before We Were White main theme performed by Dave McLaughlin, Rodney Lancashire, Ray Cohn, and Steph West. Visit the Before We Were White YouTube channel for bonus content related to each episode. Episode notes, resources, show transcripts, and further reading lists are available to supporters on our members page at beforewewerewhite.com. Supporters are also added to our social media forum, where they can field questions pertaining to podcast episodes and much more. Our work would simply not be possible without the ongoing help of our friends. Special thanks go out to Leanne, Pamela, and new supporter Tara. If you would like to support us as well, please visit www.beforewewerewhite.com forward slash support. Every contribution helps, large or small. Thank you.